Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bethany Kimmel. We're at her home in Washington, uh, in White Salmon, Washington. It's March 30th, 2022. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Uh, first question to get us started, as you know, is why wine? <laughs> well, you know, um, something that really interests me is the fact that wine has survived for so many generations of humans. and. You know, the, the world has really changed since 6000 BC a lot. Um, but, you know, here we are, we're still talking about what's essentially just fermented fruit. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I find that question really interesting. Um, and I don't know that I, you know, have, have the answer, but I, I do think that, that one of the things about the experience of being human that's, that's kind of unique is that we um, we have the ability to communicate with one another and to connect through storytelling. And that can take a lot of forms. I mean, you guys know this well. It can be an oral history. Um, it can be a written story. But I also think that it can be the visual arts. And I think it can be music. And I really believe that wine fits into that category as well. It's this um, really rich sensory experience that um, can, can allow us to connect with each other and with the experience of being alive. And very uniquely, we have that experience with our sense of taste and our sense of smell, which is located like in the, near the memory centers mm-hmm. of our brains. And so I think it, it is a, it's a powerful experience and it can be transportive and it can create connection. And um, so I, I think really asking why wine is, is the same as asking why we as humans create and share anything beautiful. And, and that question is really, I think, what drew me in and um, I find it really fascinating. So much to explore there in the rest of this interview. <laughs> I'm very excited. Let's back up a little, sec- a little bit and talk about before wine. Uh, yeah. Tell me about uh, upbringing, education, kind of what did you do after you graduated high school? Um, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, in the Appalachians in Western Carolina. Um, rural area and kind of had the run of the woods and um, lots of siblings so it was kind of an active um, upbringing. I went to Swanee in Tennessee um, which uh, actually Will Hamilton of Violin Wines also went there. We were there at the same time. Uh, And um, I studied English and anthropology and then I uh, Went to Malaysia for a year um, under a Fulbright teaching grant, and I taught English in a really rural uh, uh, village in Tringanu, and had a lot of time to travel around Southeast Asia at that time, which was really formative and um, an amazing experience. And then I came back to the United States. I kind of didn't really know uh, what was next, so I moved to Taos, New Mexico, and I taught snowboarding there. Um, a good friend of mine was, was living there at the time. And then that brought me to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, where I um, went for 
an unpaid internship at Alpinist Magazine, which is Climbing Magazine. Um, still very cool, Climbing Magazine. Um, and, you know, I was looking through the classified section of the newspaper, which I guess is how you <laughs> found a job back then. And I found a, an opening at a wine shop um, that fit my kind of hours and schedule. And so um, I, I got a job there, and I was pretty immediately fascinated by all the points of entry for wine. You know, there's climate and weather, there's farming, there's geography and geology, there's history. And so I stayed there for a long time. I was there for four and a half years and um, working retail and tasting a lot and learning a lot. And then that um, brought me to Oregon where I moved to go to Chemeketa Community College to do the two-year um, winemaking program. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's all, that's it. Uh, so let's talk about the retail part before we get to Oregon. Yeah. Uh, obviously you mentioned the points of entry and for, and for you it was just a, a job that fit your schedule with no, nothing else really beyond that at the start. What was interesting to you about wine once you started to learn about wine? Yeah, I mean I had always, I had enjoyed wine. Okay. Um, and I always found it like kind of dreamy and romantic. I actually, um, I remember that when I was a little kid, I we had to do like a school report on uh, like one of the old gods or goddesses, and I did <laughs> I did Bacchus, <laughs> and I put this like little plastic wine bottle in my like picture box or whatever, and I thought it was like so cool. So I think I've always had like some small fascination with with the concept of wine, mm -hmm. and then um, you know there was a big focus at the shop on. Uh, like learning regions and styles that um, were associated with those regions and, and then tasting a lot. And it, it just, um, it felt like this kind of whole big world of, of, again, like stories and connecting to someone in another place and, and sometimes from another time. I mean, you drink, you drink an old wine and, and you imagine what was going on and the time that mm -hmm. wine was put into bottle and and it's it's really um, I think just um, I, I always just found that interesting mm -hmm. um, that we could kind of travel back in time or to another place um, by tasting something and thinking about the season and and the cellar and the field and what it must have been like to to put make that wine so um, yeah I think uh, I also had a little travel bug from Southeast Asia, and, and it felt like a, a way t to kind of um, uh, reach outside of the small community of, of Jackson Hole and, um, you know, uh, imagine traveling for, um, to kind of visit wineries or, or vineyards or, or things like that. So little little, like, just world fascination at the same time, but, yeah. <laughs> For your wine education then, tell me about learning wine and at what point did you start to kind of d d develop preferences for either wines to drink, wines to, t to turn people onto, uh, wines that were exciting to you, how did, that, how did that process occur? Yeah, you know I had a lot of like preconceived notions from working in the retail shop and, um, and I think like working there I was with some great people who who really did know like kind of um, some of the more unique styles but when I moved to Oregon and started studying it 
like this whole next level opened up. And um, certainly I had never had so many like really stunning Oregon Pinot Noirs. And um, uh, I think that like just kind of developing that, that preference for maybe lighter body, like higher acid, lower alcohol wines, things that were, that I think uh, I started to recognize how wine made me feel, mm -hmm. um, whether it made me tired or like energized. And you know, when you, when you have that opportunity to t taste a lot, you start to kind of tap into some of those, those things. And, and so I really began looking for wines that um, felt high energy and joyful and made me feel good mm -hmm. when, I, when I drank them. Um, so that felt like, you know, I think when I got started and maybe when a lot of people get started, you're first exposed to like the fancy wines are like really heavily oaked and really rich and, um, and then you start to, to kind of move into, or I started to kind of move into this other world of quality wine that, um, you know, the, the special elements of the wine were maybe a little bit more derived from place and, and weren't as kind of heavy handed when it came to, um, styles, um, stylistic, mm -hmm. you know, um, winemaking impressions. So. <laughs> so when you're in the, when you're in the wine shop, uh, before, before Oregon, you obviously have a re retail wine, different, different kind of game than, than other kinds of wine, different, different kind of way to learn it. Um, what were the wines there that you found people, people were buying? What were people excited about and, and yeah. what were you, how did you sell wine? How did you learn to sell wine? Yeah. Good God, I haven't thought about some of this stuff in a long time. <laughs> you know, I remember when we got, uh, I'm not sure I pronounce it correctly still, but Adaraxia Sauvignon Blanc from South Africa, and it's got this like beautiful angel on it. And at the time I thought like, oh wow, this is just really so unique and special. You know, that was maybe the first time I knew a wine was made in South Africa, you know, and um, similar, similarly, like, I think at that time wines from Chile and Argentina were still pretty new in the market. and you know, now it's, it's other regions, maybe it's like Hungary and Georgia and, um, but I think that that's kind of a, a neat progression. You, you drink what's kind of most available and then you start to explore like, uh, regions that are a little, maybe smaller. I haven't had as many wines imported mm -hmm. in the United States and, um, you know, the shop was really well organized, which works for my brain. Um, so it was organized by country and then within that um, by region and by price. And so that, I think that gave me really nice context mm -hmm. and frame of reference to learn what great varieties kind of belong in or are common in certain regions. And then um, kind of, you know, at that time, I think it was helpful to also have the, the kind of price organization so I could understand the spectrum of, of you know, wines available from different places. And of course, I work at ENR Wine Shop now, and whole other world, right? Like, um, what gets into Wyoming, there's some really great wine in Wyoming, but it's, it's really different than the shop experience I have now. And so, I mean, I think that's such a pleasure mm -hmm. to, to think that you have a grasp on something and then to realize, <laughs> oh my God, like, you know, the more I know, the more I don't you know, no, I don't know, um, kind of thing. So, um, retail has been, um, a big part of, of kind of the way I've, I've continued to learn about, um, what's happening in the world of wine. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned coming to Oregon to be at Chemeketo. Why did you choose that path when you were looking to when you're looking for the next step in wine? Well, I looked at. I knew I I wanted to come to Oregon. Um, I liked Oregon Pinot Noir, and I I always had a small obsession with Oregon. Like when I was a kid, I got introduced to chai tea from Oregon, and I was like, I gotta go to Oregon. <laughs> um, and so um, I looked at OSU first, and, and I talked to a great professor there uh, who actually steered me in the direction of Chemeketa. Um, I already had, you know, a bachelor's degree and really wanted the kind of the practical tools mm -hmm. to be able to um, work in the industry. And I think that was a good call for me. Um, I was really lucky uh, at Chemeketa. I got to study with Barney Watson, who's, who had taught at OSU for so many years. I still, over there, have my like book of, um, you know, um, slides and, and notes from from Barney, and I, I refer to them often. And really appreciated the way that he taught, and um, thought that that was an amazing way to mm -hmm. to get the information I needed to take the next steps um, yeah what was the I guess I, I think I skipped a step in the questions here what prompted you to want to be in that side of wine what, oh. what, what was the what was the <laughs> impetus to not just Oregon but also just like getting into wine production of course sorry yeah no. that's such a great question I um, you know I think I probably went into it with a lot of um, hey um, kind of initial ignorance of exactly what it was but I was really fascinated by no okay <laughs> sorry fascinated by the um, the fact that wine is a craft wine making is this craft and it's one of the few things left I think where you kind of you go and you are an apprentice and you learn from someone who knows these skills and has developed them f from years of experience and then you get to actually like make something with your hands. I mean it's these raw materials that come in and and you transform them into something that people can enjoy and I think the, the kind of craft element of that and really like the, f the physical mm -hmm. element of um, of wine work felt really exciting to me. Um, yeah. I remember the first year at Chemeca that they don't let you in the cellar, but the classroom is like right above the winery and there's these windows. So I'd like gaze down in there and be like, oh, like what is all that equipment? And like, when do I get to get down in there and like, you know, open those valves? And you know, uh, I, I just, um, felt like I was looking in on a very special world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you did get to open some of those valves and mess around <laughs> in there a little bit, you mentioned kind of not having necessarily a notion of what, what the work was. What, what, what were your first impressions of practical wine work? Oh, wow. Um, I think I was pretty tenuous at first. I felt like it was probably, I, I felt like any little movement could ruin everything, you know, any little air bubble or, and, um, but I also, um, you know, was excited to learn a set of skills that would allow me to feel confident. And, and it's, it's one of those, I think, moments in life where you dive into something that you think 
you think you know and you realize you don't and it scares the shit out of you but that's really exciting too and to to build that confidence and that ability to work in that environment um, without so much trepidation um, is is I think again one of the things that like is beautiful about life and and um, and you know is, is something to, to work for. Mm -hmm. if, I, if we only did things that didn't scare us, um, I don't know where we'd be, but yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed it and I knew I was in good hands. I mean, I, like Barney was leading the class, like I felt really sure that he wouldn't let me mess it up. So, <laughs> so that was good. Um, and of course, part of the education is that you have to get an internship um, for Harvest. Mm -hmm. And I had worked at Soder Vineyards and Hospitality. I got a job right away when I moved to Oregon at Soder, which I, you know, was uh, really special. And I'm so glad that I got to have that experience because um, that, you know, hospitality there is just exceptional. And uh, they allowed me to work my first harvest there in 2012. So again, I knew I was in really professional good hands, and I felt. Um, you know, excited to learn from some of the best. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what was the first harvest experience like? You know, it was amazing. Uh, it was very exciting. Um, I wanted to be there for kind of every moment of it. And I, I think it's like puppy energy, right? <laughs> when you're young and getting into it. And I think I had a lot of like intern puppy energy. Um, but the fruit that we worked with, that was 2012. So the fruit we were working with was just like absolutely stunning. And, and just to have the experience of um, all those new aromas and the kind of transformation of flavors. And I remember uh, the first time I ever used a pump looking at the, the hose coiled on the ground with the red wine flowing through and just like rhythmically beating and I was like oh it's like a heart you know I mean just I found it to be but hard right mm -hmm. like I had never worked hours like that in my life and um, definitely you know you learn quickly that that this is this is not all I mean there's plenty of romance to be had and there's plenty of um, kind of special things about that experience but it's also like wet and cold and dirty and long and and all that but I, but I loved that part of it too um, so so you mentioned you had a you'd ha you wanted to come to Oregon because you had an affinity for Oregon wines as, as one of the one of the reasons you were excited about it what were your first impressions of the Oregon industry as you started to work in it and get to know the people in it what did you think of the Oregon wine industry oh man I, I mean um, I loved it right away. My first year in Oregon going to Chemeketa, I lived in Salem. So that was a little, I was a little bit um, more isolated then. But uh, in the second year, um, I moved to Carleton and rented this big four bedroom house and just put it up on Craigslist. And three other kind of winemakers on their way moved in. And it was, uh, we called it the Carleton Club because that's what I had named the internet. And, um, you know, it was really social, and uh, I, th I think that was one of the most special experiences I've ever had. Um, it was um, lots of people from different wineries 
you know, coming home with, with bottles from their wineries or bottles that inspired them. We cooked a lot. We, you know, talked about, we would get together and talk about like, oh, where are your Maliks finished yet? And, you know, we'd talk about wine and what's going on. And um, I just found it really welcoming. Mm -hmm. And um, people, you know, to attract people with a lot of different backgrounds and, and ways of understanding things. And, and so that I think there's like so much strength in that when people can communicate and share um, that information and, and those ways of, of thinking and their experiences. So yeah, it's, I found it very warm and welcoming and um, um, kind of community driven and I, I really loved all of those aspects. Yeah. What about the wines themselves at that point? Uh, what did you think of, you obviously mentioned 2012, beautiful fruit, beautiful vintage. Yeah. Uh, what, when, you, when you came to Oregon and you were kind of surrounded by Oregon wine, was, the, was it what you hoped it would be? Oh, it was so much more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course I was working at Soder Vineyards too and pouring, I forget what vintage, but I think it was like 2009 Brut Rosé from Soder. And, um, you know, I discovered that that Oregon doesn't just have Pinot Noir, that there's really amazing Chardonnay and really amazing sparkling wine and some, you know, interesting Syrah. And now, like now, if, however many years later, 10 years later, there's even kind of more to explore. Um, I also, you know, I was exposed to a very limited set of Oregon wines in Wyoming, and I hadn't really traveled here before I moved here. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, you know, I, I just learned about so many more producers doing, doing beautiful work that didn't really leave this state or at least get to Wyoming, mm -hmm. and that was mm -hmm. just so cool. I mean, the, the kind of wines I was familiar with when I came and the wines I was familiar with six months in, like, you know, more than, more than quadrupled, mm -hmm, you know, so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, it was, it was, I think, really wonderful, yeah, exceeded my expectations. <laughs> so after the first harvest, you're, you're working at Soder, what was the next step for you, and, and at this point, what were you sort of hoping for, what were you, vi <laughs> so sorry about it's okay. the dog. It's okay. Oh, hey, okay, I'm just gonna, hey, get away, you need to go away, go. <laughs> Sorry. It's, no, it's all um, good. I'll, I'll ask it again just, so just, for, yeah. just, for, just for editing hey. purposes. Hey, hey sweetie, are you, okay, are you here just here. to wreck everything? Come here, come here, sit, stay, okay, just stay there, all right. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. So after your after your first year, uh, you, you, first your harvest, and then uh, you're working at Soder still. What was next for you at that point, and and what were you visualizing long term? What were you hoping to get out of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty I was pretty like cocky and excited back then, and I just wanted to be a winemaker, you know. And um, uh, so the path that I saw was to to work. Um, harvest internships and um, you know I, I uh, just wanted to get a job in a cellar like I was so eager to get a, a full-time year-round job in production at that time um, and um, so my next vintage was uh, in California at Costa Brown um, they just moved into the Barlow so um, 
and then I traveled to New Zealand the following spring and I worked at Hunters in um, Marlborough, which was really cool. That's one of the like older, I, I think they're the first people to make Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough. So that was a cool experience and I loved being in New Zealand. And then after that, I worked at Chapter 24. Um, that was when they were out at Mesara. Mm -hmm. And then I um, moved to the Gorge, and I got a job at Anna Lima Wines in Mosier. Um, and that, um, I was there for the next, I guess, three and a half years, three, three and a half years. Um, and that was a really, you know, special place to work and grow. Um, and yeah. Tell me about more about Anna Lima and your experience there. Um, well, they're a really, I think, really smart, thoughtful um, cup. You know, Chris and Stephen, that um, you know, business partners. Um, they had like a very big vision, um, and had become fascinated with some Spanish varieties that weren't grown in the U.S. Um, and Thea is kind of the biggest mm -hmm. example. Um, but they saw, you know, the gorge uh, has had many long history of wine. Um, actually, Adivis Vineyard that we worked with at Analima was planted in 1969, so kind of got its its start at the same, you know, similar time mm -hmm. as the Willamette Valley. But um, it kind of had an, you know, the wine scene here along a different growth trajectory than in the in the Willamette mm -hmm. Valley. And so I think they still saw this opportunity to really try and figure out what grows well, specifically in their kind of unique microclimate along this spectrum that people talk about um, of the, you know, the 20 miles of the gorge where it's, you know, um, basically rainforest on one end and desert on the other. And Mosier, where they're located, is right in this transition zone between you know, the wet, cool Pacific Northwest weather and the dry, hot kind of high desert and so they found you know a link in that climate mm -hmm. to Galicia and um, were able to get some Minthea cuttings and so and and um, so it was there at a really exciting time they were they're planting more Minthea but the estate vineyard had started to come online they were still working with Atavis and making some really world-class sparkling wine um, and you know, a lot of energy around a young business and their kind of young, energetic business owners. And um, I learned a whole lot there about, they, they also were the first to kind of really uh, help me get a good grasp on biodynamic farming and also what that means kind of on the winery side of things. And so I think working there opened my mind in a whole lot of um, ways to kind of the different interactions that we might have when it comes to farming and making wine. And and what that might, you know, I, I told you I was like cocky, just wanted to be a winemaker, but maybe I hadn't really tapped into like the why of that so much. And I think that they really kind of created an environment that questioned and explored and tried to, to get at the root of, mm -hmm. of why in order to inform um, their practices. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a really, special experience and a good opportunity to learn. 
So as you were developing that, the kind of why, uh, how did your sort of vision transform and how did that turn into where you are now? Well, um, you know, one of the things that they allowed me to do as part of my uh, job there was to make two tons of wine per year. And um, I had tasted some really cool gamets early on. We were talking about like you're changing taste um, profiles and I, the first time I tasted like really great Gamay, my mind was like completely blown. And I, you know, hadn't really tasted Gamay from Oregon, but I knew it grew in Oregon. Um, and um, I kind of talked about it loudly to like friends <laughs> for a while. And I was like, I want to make Gamay, I want to make Gamay. And so um, I talked about it long enough that a friend actually came to me and was like, hey, there's this Gamay fruit available. And so I had, I had played around and made a barrel of Gamay prior to working at Analemma um, and was really excited about it. Um, it turned out so beautifully. It was from these um, David Adelsheim's like original home block. So very old vines. They don't exist anymore, sadly. But um, uh, so I wanted to continue to explore that. and. You know, when you're making wine for with someone, uh, there's that confidence of being in good hands and being guided and, and knowing that, you know, the decisions that you're, you, you're kind of playing out of have, they're not, you know, ones that you made, right? But as soon as it's your project and you're the person who's responsible for it, it's a completely mm -hmm. different ball game. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, I valued that, and I wanted to continue to make Gamay. And so, um, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of, they, they said that I could make some Gamay in their cellar as long as I became a full licensed bonded alternating proprietor. And again, in my ignorance, I was like, sure, sounds great, no problem. And I, I really didn't understand kind of what it took from a like a paperwork and admin and logistics side to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got through all of that and I had made it happen, I, you know, I was like, I need to, like, actually sell this wine if if I'm gonna have made this commitment. Um, and so my first commercial wine was in 2015. It was you know 100 cases, um, and that happened to be when I released it happened to be the same time as the, the first I love Gamay Fest in Portland and um, you know I it's been kind of a little bit rolling from there to where I am now I'm not sure I answered your question about the why um, sometimes I feel like I I'm just like riding away <laughs> rather than uh, than really being like in three years I want exactly this um, and I'm I'm you know, having lived the last 10 years moving through the wine industry, I kind of see the value now of, of really trying to, to plan a little bit more um, intricately, I know. Because <laughs> if you don't do that, you end up in a field without running water and uh, in, a, in a pole barn. So, <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> I was going to say, there, there are worse places to end up than this. Uh, I want to talk about that in a second and, and, the, and the, this space, but you, you have this kind, of, this kind of affinity for Gamay and, and you're sort of finding your way with it. Uh, 
as you were as you, you were the per, as you were the person making the decisions and and driving driving the vision of the it's okay it's okay as you were driving the vision of it what what were the decisions you were making in terms of how you how you were going to make the wine mm, yeah. and, and how you were going to sell the wine yeah um, you know um, hey um, I didn't ooh at chapter 24 I um, had the kind of pleasure of, of watching Mikey Etzel um, do the Double Zero project. And in that um, project, he used to spread, um, spread the fruit out on a big stainless steel table and have um, a lot of help, but clip all of the grapes off at the, is it the pedicle? I never say that word right. Um, in order to basically have the impact of whole cluster without all the stem tannin. Mm -hmm. um, and by impact of whole cluster, I mean keeping the berries intact and with no you know, opening for the juice to escape. So you get this cool you know, um, dynamic in the fermentation that's it's a little bit different. Um, the juice doesn't escape as quickly. And, and of course, I you know knew about carbonic maceration with Gamay Noir and the tradition of that. And I my brain was like, oh gosh, like you know, if there's a way to keep the berries intact and not do this whole cluster, you get this kind of like textural elegance um, and a really kind of pure in internal mm -hmm. you know um, fermentation. And so, the first year I ever made Gamay, I. Um, stayed up. I was working in chapter 24. It, we were working like 16 hour days. So I remember getting off of a harvest day and having my, I think it was 0.6 tons of fruit and staying up till 6 in the morning with, with uh, my boyfriend at the time drinking whiskey and just plucking the berries off just one by one just trying to very gently pull each berry off of the stems. And I just, and I I was like just blown away by how intense that work was, um, but it made this like really cool wine. And so that was one of the things that um, that I wanted to continue. And so I've continued to hand stem my fruit. And I think that having that kind of time with the fruit to kind of go through every cluster and I've graduated to this little cribble. I have a cribble that I sometimes use now, um, depending on the fruit. Uh, it's sometimes easier and sometimes harder. And um, except for the 2020 vintage in which smoke was a, an issue, I've continued to handy stem. Um, and then I've really worked hard to figure out carbonic maceration and I don't think I've totally you know, figured it out quite yet. Um, but that's been something that's kind of held my interest and I've, I've you know, changed my practices mm -hmm. um, a lot over the years, um, doing a lot of like small kind of open top barrel ferments, mm -hmm. um, as well as just sealing whole clusters in um, some VC tanks. Um, I feel like I'm getting off topic here, but no, it's good. It's good. <laughs> with with let's let's talk about Gamay then. Obviously, you mentioned the first I Love Gamay Fest, right? As you're getting into Gamay or you're you're making your first Gamay. Uh, obviously, a big growth in Gamay, so yeah. all those grapes, I assume, were a harder to find at some point. Tell, oh me, tell, tell, me, <laughs> tell me about sourcing it and also about selling it when it's not when it's not Pinot Noir yeah. in Oregon. 
That's great, yeah. Um, I mean, I felt like when I first got started, like people would almost like give me their gamay fruit, you know? And then all of a sudden, like overnight, they were like, ooh, no, it's gonna be $3,000 a ton and I've got like six people in line for it. And um, yeah, and I'm a really small producer still. And so um, I, I continue to have a hard time finding fruit uh, but gamay vines are coming online, and, and it is really cool to see so many more gamays in Oregon, because I, I think like I think that it's really well suited um, to a lot of different places in the valley. And um, I actually, you know, one of the, the ways that I'm going to try to kind of soften that out a little is that I'm going to plant gamay here. I have only 600 vines on order for this spring, but I'm starting with that this spring. Um, and I'd like to kind of be able to, to see the process through from, from ground to bottle. Mm -hmm. As far as marketing goes, um, at Chapter 24, I worked with an um, Australian winemaker named Max Marriott, and he was amazing. And, you know, I think of him as a, as a mentor. Um, but he, prior to, to coming to the US, he had a Riesling brand. Um, and it was strictly Riesling. And he told me at the time, he, he was like, you know, if you want to start a label, you know, you should just focus on one thing and um, become really good at that. Um, learn how to do that really well. And um, I think that was really great advice for me at the time. Um, not only from just the standpoint of developing some technical skills and, and learning to do something well, but also from a marketing perspective, I think, you know, if you kind of become known as like someone who makes gamay, it's easier to sell your gamay. Um, and, you know, I think timing was good for me to kind of, um, uh, to, to put some gamay on the market. Um, there, you know, it, <laughs> the like model for getting into this industry right now, I'm still trying to figure out and I, I don't think I figured it out, but um, it, it's, it's hard to, to market a new product or a new wine and God, I hate even saying it's a product, but it's, it's hard to like put something out there on the market mm -hmm. that people are not familiar with. Mm -hmm. But I do think that like, you know, um, the, People who are, are interested in wine right now are interested in trying new things and are really interested in like the different types of flavors and particularly like Oregon wine lovers like they know they love Pinot Noir um, but it's kind of fun to try something that uh, is a little a little different mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned not even wanting to call it a product, and I get that. I understand. Yeah. That, I understand that. You, you know. <laughs> so tell me about the first time you remember taking your wine, your wine, to 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 the public, to people to ah, try. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, I think that the really the first time was the I Love Gamay Fest. So um, I I don't think I had sold. I don't know. It's hard to know if I had sold any wine before that or not. Um, but I remember. Um, just, I was really nervous about that event. I was excited about it. I showed up with a big bowl of lilacs and I was so worried that the, the aroma would be too strong that I like, <laughs> needed these flowers to feel like confident. Um, and 
you know, the wine was well received. Um, people were excited about what they were tasting, and it was it was just like such a pleasure to share something that I had had made mm -hmm. with with people and for them to enjoy it. And um, that event was was super fun, and I think gave me some kind of confidence. Um, when you're working alone in your cellar in your space, maybe you're tasting things and, and it's easy to be kind of hard on yourself or to get some notion in your head about how this will be received, but the only way to really know is to, um, to share it. And um, yeah, I got some good feedback from that event. Uh, and um, that kind of has, you know, there have been a number of things along the way that have encouraged me to keep going, right? Um, and that, that was certainly one of them. Mm -hmm. Before we go on, I'm I'm curious. You had to, at this point had you were commercially licensed. You had to eventually choose a name. So, oh, so, yeah. so tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that was really hard. <laughs> and you know, if I had to do it again, I might not choose the same exact name. Particularly, I my winery name is the Color Collector. Um, I'm trying to kind of move towards just Color Collector because it's a little wordy. But anyway. Um, um, yeah, choosing a name is surprisingly difficult. Um, and I actually, you know, we talked about, I told you about the Carlton Club and this group of friends. We talked a lot about like what we wanted to do and dreamt about what we would create um, if and when we had the opportunity to, to create our own winery. And so when I was coming up with a name, um, the, this crew was like very crucial in helping me think through that. Um, and I still call all of these folks when I'm having a problem in the winery or, you know, um, it remains like a, a group I can consult about stuff like this. But um, the name comes from a children's book called Frederick by Leo Leone. And the book is about a little mouse who, um, when all the other mice are gathering like wheat and grains and useful things for the winter, um, this mouse sits in the field and kind of soaks in the colors of the field, the, the colors of the field and the feeling of the sunshine. And um, you know, the mice kind of give it a hard time for not um, helping or working. Um, oh. um, but then they go into their little winter cave and they eat through all their supplies. And in the end, they're like, Frederick, what about your supplies? And it, he tells them stories about like the feeling of the sun and, and the colors of the meadow. And these are the things that sustain them through the like cold winter months. And in, in many ways, I think wine is that too. It's like the gathered kind of colors of a season kind of put like encapsulated in a bottle for you know pleasure and enjoyment and connection with other people. And, um, kind of s sustenance in, in hard times. Um, and I hate to like go on and on about this, but the, the, real, the real reason why that story resonates with me is that, you know, I grew up reading Swimmy and Frederick, these books by Leo Leone. And in those years, kind of after college, when I was traveling in Southeast Asia and um, living in New Mexico, I, I felt pretty directionless mm -hmm. and I would, call home and um, tell my parents, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not making any money. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. And they would 
um, say, you know, it's, it's all right, like right now you're just collecting colors. So when I had that like focus um, of what I wanted to do, um, it felt right to kind of honor that, that opportunity, that freedom that they gave me and, and to call it the color collector. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty fantastic story for a, for a wine label. I love oh, it. It's like, <laughs> so it's not an elevator pitch. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. So you started the color collector while you're still working at Analemma, obviously very small project and, and not your, not your main, your, not your day job at the, at the time. So how do you end up here? What, what are the next steps that end up with you? Here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I used to say that my wine was made only in moonlight because that was like the hour. I, you know, those are the hours I had. Um, I think it's always been kind of hard to find that that focus and balance. Um, and and you know, s still this is not my my only my only job. Um, <laughs> uh, but in 2018, I decided that it was time to try to um, focus a little bit more on, on um, giving this project a real chance. And uh, so I left Analemma and I went and worked a vintage in New Zealand, another New Zealand vintage at Burn Cottage in Central Otago, um, which was an amazing experience. They brought all of us together for, I think, three months working in the field before we went to be the um, seller team. And so we were really intimately familiar with the fruit and had gotten to know each other really well, which just changed the dynamic of harvest a lot. Um, and I love Central Otago. But anyway, um, I did that. And then the idea was that while I was there, kind of away from you know, friends and family and everything familiar, I would really focus on writing a business plan. Um, which I, I did. I found this like little, you know, cottage out in the middle of nowhere on a vineyard. And, uh, you know, I would go to work and then I would come home and, and just write this business plan. And so, um, you know, I came back with uh, a, a thick and dreamy but <laughs> impossible document <laughs> that's changed so many times. Um, but that was kind of, I think, the, the moment of, of, of changing my focus towards Trying to, trying to grow the color collector. Um, that was, yeah, oh, uh, 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. So um, I bought this property in 2019. And um, it's been a very slow process to try and put some vines in the ground. I, this pole barn um, w was built this, I built this summer. Um, so this kind of, is the very first opportunity I have to be in my own space. I've always shared cellar space, which has been really fun and collaborative, but um, I'm excited for like the kind of just like creative room I have here to kind of really focus. Um, and hopefully this will give me the opportunity to grow in size a little bit too as far as production. So I really maintained like like 100 to 350 cases which is just insane insanely tiny and so it's time to it's time to grow just a little bit which is super exciting mm -hmm. yeah so I know it's it's not a winery with all the bells and whistles but <laughs> as, as you were putting up a pole barn, pole barn what were you as, as your first own space yeah what were you what, what was important to you about the space um you know I I really just wanted like a 
well, and also from a money and logistics standpoint, like this is simply a very practical shell. Um, I needed a space that I could control um, relatively well for temperature, mm -hmm. um, and a floor drain was very important to me. Um, and I still don't have running water in this building, although that is the current project. So hopefully in a month and a half, I'll have some water, which is very <laughs> crucial to winemaking. Um, and, um, you know, uh, a space that I can kind of move around in and have kind of flexibility in. So n nothing, nothing in here, and actually I really appreciated this about Soder, um, Vineyard, nothing is set in place. Mm -hmm. Everything is movable. So, really could kind of reimagine the space for whatever purpose it needs to serve um, at any time. And, you know, Soder is a, a, you know, a real and much bigger winery. And th they kind of took that approach. And I thought that was really, really cool um, when I was working there. So, um, yeah, flexibility and, um, yeah, the, the, kind of just basic wine care mm -hmm. uh, stuff, I think is like temperature and sanitation and um, ability to get in and out, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so since you, since you started making wine for yourself, especially for, your, for the color collector, how, if at all, has your approach or sort of style changed? Oh, wow, it's still changing, you know. I learned something, I think, every harvest that kind of really blows my mind and I hope that that continues. Also working at ENR and tasting um, tasting a lot of world wines um, I think continues to kind of help me feel like more stylistically expansive just knowing how much uh, how much how many different styles of wine there are out there. Um, I would say my general practices have always been native yeast, minimal kind of intervention, unfiltered. Um, uh, I've always respected the use of sulfur at, you know, in the right amounts and at the right moments. Um, and I, I continue to appreciate that. Um, I think the things that I've learned have mostly been about kind of fermentation dynamics and it used to be that I tried to like seal up all of my ferments um, to kind of keep a more pure carbonic maceration and I would say I have I learned a lot about like EA and VA and and other types of spoilage and um, I kind of separate out carbonic from other ferments a little more um, draw some cleaner lines mm -hmm. now um, between those um, I've experimented a little, I made a pastagon, I uh, experimented a little with co-ferments um, and actually made a field blend um, from my good buddy Joey Myers. Um, he calls it his wine patch, which I love. Um, and I think that <laughs> there's, so much, uh, there's so much kind of um, neat possibility there with, um, you know, combining different elements of, of texture and flavor, um, but having them kind of grow up together and mm -hmm. um, 
from the very beginning rather than, I mean, I think it's cool to blend at the end too, but, um, but I think that is a special way to make wine. And um, his field blend, you know, there's some white varieties in there as well as, as red, and I think that's really fascinating to explore how like the white um, wines can help the, um, fix the color. And um, yeah, so it's extended a little beyond just, just Gamay. Um, have a sparkling wine entourage over there, which um, <laughs> hopefully is the first of many sparkling projects, but uh, that's a really, I think, a hard wine style to master, um, although a lot of people in Oregon are doing it really well. Um, yeah, does that answer the question? <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, as you have been out here on now on the, on the Washington side of the border, uh, what have you noticed about this this area now that you're mm. like that you're here? What 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 is what is going on in the gorge and and what is going on uh, in terms of sort of, I guess both sides of the border here? Yeah, the gorge is really exciting right now. There's this like kind of palpable energy here um, with um, a lot of really thoughtful growers um, and winemakers who have gravitated to this area. I think partly because it it feels um, exploratory. Um, you know, Nate Reddy is doing some really special things at Hayu and S Stephen and Chris at Anna Lima, um, Idiot's Grace, and um, James Mantone at Syncline has planted a lot of um, kind of unique varieties, got some on Deuce growing, and there's just a lot, I think, of um, interest in finding the right grape for the right spot here. Um, I think it makes it a little more difficult to really, like in a small sentence, like classify what the gorge is or what it has to offer. Um, but that, that energy I think is inspiring to me. Um, and you know, I'm at, I mean, we're, it's cold here. <laughs> it's cold. Um, I'm at 2000 feet elevation. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> whether or not grapevines can survive here is really, to me, still in question. But I also love the idea of having kind of a alpine expression from Washington. I, I think that that's a really interesting thing to explore. I planted some Shasla out there. Um, it's actually like, it's really had a hard go of it <laughs> in its early years. So we'll see how it does. But I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying and gonna plant um, going to continue to plant as I can. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think there's some wines being made here that are, couldn't be made anywhere else, mm -hmm. uh, and are really stunning and interesting to taste and really talk about, you know, the different, like, the wind and water and volcanic energy of the gorge. Like, mm -hmm. this is a really, like, um, energy-rich place, um, and I also just like living here because there's skiing and mountain biking, and <laughs> you know, it's a. I think one thing uh, that also attracts people to kind of wine is that you get to live in like some pretty cool places, um, and yeah. So. So you mentioned your day job at ENR. Yeah. Tell, tell me how that came to be. 
Um, let's see. I okay. So Burn Cottage, and then I came back and I worked vintage that year, and I kind of gave myself that year to just um, focus on color collector. But I knew that that wasn't uh, sustainable forever. Um, I, I still have never paid myself <laughs> anything from this, so I, hopefully I'll get there soon. But um, so at the end of that vintage of 2019, I started looking for jobs. They also they had advertised on Craigslist without a name, but I was like, this is ENR, because they you know they had asked about your music preferences and they're really into good music mm -hmm. there. Um, so applied and I was like, this is my job. And I was like really excited and hoped I got it. Uh, and they got back and they were like, we've already hired someone else. And I was heartbroken, was like, okay, I gotta keep looking, I'm gonna find something. Um, really wanted to work in retail again because of the exposure to tasting and distributors and just understanding what's going on in the world of wine. So retail, I, I was really wanted to work in retail. Mm -hmm. But then a couple weeks later, they got back to me and they were like, actually, we do have a position. So um, I was super stoked, started working there in the fall of 2019. Um, and then, of course, in March of 2020, um, that kind of <laughs> changed a lot. But, but they, um, we worked really hard um, and created a website during those kind of early months of 2020. Um, which has enabled us to like continue to sell wine and um, put a lot of like very good information about wine um, to share it in a in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I really love working there. <laughs> good group of people, amazing um, access and and um, collection of wine. So. You mentioned earlier from your first retail job how different this one was for that. So tell me about the differences and what ENR is sort of, what, what, it, what about it excites you? What about working there excites you? Yeah, um, well, one of the neat things that they do is actually a lot of travel. And so um, in, we have, they haven't been doing this, we haven't been doing this uh, in the last couple of years, but you know, for many years, Ed and, um, more recently, Lara, I've been going to Italy and going to France and meeting with producers and finding out their stories. I mean, um, tasting from sellers. And, and I think that level of kind of intimate knowledge of what's actually going on and um, is, is pretty unique for a retailer. Mm -hmm. um, and in certain situations, um, they actually, if they find something they, they really think is amazing that hasn't been represented in the United States before. They find kind of importer and distributor to work with and bring those wines here to Oregon. And so there's some, oops, <laughs> there's some um, producers and some wines um, there that, um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe they're kind of here in Oregon because they went and tasted them in Italy and thought they were cool. And, and, and I think that is, is, uh, is so special. Um, and, you know, I think, I mean, the number changes all the time, but they're like over 1800 different wines in there. So it's just, I mean, it's like mind boggling, like at, at no point, um, will I know all of them, mm -hmm. but it is pretty neat. I've been there a couple of years now and I have learned great varieties that I hadn't even heard of. And, um, you know, now when someone's coming in looking for like 
something that two years ago I, I wouldn't even know what they were talking about. I know exactly where to find it and which producer is, is uh, doing it well. And um, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's uh, really cool. We taste, you know, we taste a fair bit of, of um, kind of special wine there too. I've gotten to taste some lineups of wine that I just would never have access to otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a, it's a special place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So you mentioned 2020, obviously, and, and the, the impacts. And I want to talk about both parts because you brought up earlier. You brought up the, the, vint the vintage of 2020. Oh, so let's, yeah. talk about, let's talk about COVID first. <laughs> and and, and uh, obviously, uh, not a lot of neighbors out here. You did, I'm assuming your day-to-day -day life didn't change a ton. But tell me about 2020 <laughs> and and as things started to shut down, what changed for you and and how you kind of adjusted during that year? Yeah, um, that was a really interesting time. I felt really lucky to have this space. I mean, I um, kind of in the in the kind of early months of 2020 and late 2019, I'd kind of been living part time with uh, a friend in Portland and part time out here. And that was a nice balance when um, when COVID kind of went into like lockdown mode. I moved fully into this tiny house out here uh, and for months like I was just here by myself really I mean I would get groceries uh but that was it and and um you know as much as that the circumstances of that were really horrible and um hard that was I never would have done that otherwise and it, it was a it was a neat time for me to to be just really present and focused um on, on what's going on and what's possible here. Um, I did a lot of, like, I don't even have internet here. Like, I just read books and did artwork and, you know, um, drank Lambrusco and built this deer fence. I mean, it was a, it was a time to just really be present. Um, so, and I, I did actually, uh, you know, every now and then commute in to go to ENR, which was a nice break and a nice way to, to see a s small select group of people. Um, but yeah, it was very, very isolating out here. <laughs> yeah, very alone. <laughs> yeah, but. It's very little house on the prairie all of a sudden. It had a lot of room to roam though. Yeah, I mean, it was full on. Yeah, it felt like I was at like a summer camp of one. <laughs> yeah. And the other end of 2020, the, the, the harvest end, you mentioned obviously it, it impacted basically everyone in, in Oregon. Tell me about uh, your, your kind of 2020 harvest story from your perspective and, and what, if any, sort of changes that made for you going forward? Yeah, that, um, that was a, it, it kind of shook me up. Um, a really, a lot of difficult decisions had to be made and um, you know, I felt grateful that I'm small and um, uh, I definitely made winemaking decisions um, that I wouldn't have otherwise. I destemmed all of my fruit mm -hmm. and was reminded of kind of the generous spirit of Oregon uh, in that um, I don't have a destemmer and so because I hand destem, I use whole cluster. And so I asked, you know, I work with Bjornsson Vineyards um, 
in the OLA Amity, and I asked if I could use their destimmer to destim their fruit, and they generously like gave me the afternoon. And my my dad actually came and helped me, and we were up there all day on their destimmer, and and they were just very kind to let me do that. Um, and Di Crisp also let me use his equipment for my Temperance Hill fruit. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know made my microferments and I did the, you know, I paid attention and I, again, was reminded just how, like, great Oregon as a wine industry is about communicating and sharing with one another and trying to, like, work through problems together. Um, I tried to make red wine and um, some of it I've had to distill because it was just too smoky and that was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Other pieces, um, I was able to, to blend in with some 2019 I still had left and made a, I think, a nice wine. Um, I still have some 2020 in barrel. Um, I'm experimenting right now with some botanical infusions and the um, distilled brandy that I was able to make, and I'm really excited about that, and I've got this honey from my little bees out here. Um, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see if I can use that um, to kind of make a, a vermouth-inspired aperitif type wine. Um, and and one of the reasons that I'm really excited about that is because I don't think this is the last time this is going to happen. Um, I think that what I am taking from this is that any way you can kind of diversify and learn to handle, um, you know, changing situations is going to become increasingly important mm -hmm. um, as the climate just changes and becomes a little more, um, you know, volatile. And so, yeah, I'm taking uh, I'm taking a, a herbalism botanical course right now. I, I kind of want to expand my knowledge and skill set um, to become more nimble um, moving forward and I think if this were to happen again, I would make different decisions. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to learn what I can and move forward, so. We'll talk about moving forward. Uh, what's, what's, <laughs> what's next for you in all of your roles? What, you mentioned growth, obviously, here at the Color Collector. Yep. What's, what are you, as you look at kind of short-term, long-term future, what, what, what comes next? You know, I have the real big goal of getting up to 750 cases, which is still tiny, um, but I, uh, I want to stay at a size that allows me to kind of participate in all the aspects of making and selling, and I think, you know, eventually things like this take their own course, and eventually maybe that won't be the case, but I want to make sure that I know kind of intimately all the pieces of this business that are required. Um, Definitely hoping that I can start farming here um, m more extensively, mm -hmm. um, both wine grapes as well as some fruit trees. And um, I'd love to, um, you know, plant kind of food forest inspired uh, garden here and have this, you know, eventually maybe a place where people could come and um, like pick everything they need for a meal, um, that, that idea inspires me, but uh, I am a long way off from that. Um, so kind of growing, growing the wine production, growing um, actual, you know, grapes that I get to make mm -hmm. and, and tend the whole season. Um, 
and then, um, you know, hopefully ultimately continuing to work uh, at ENR um, and taste a lot of different wine from them too. <laughs> it's very distracting with this puppy, sorry. Yes, we have a, we have a guest puppy uh, today who is making everything an adventure today. But very It's all good, it's, it's, it's part of life in the vineyard. Oh here. my goodness. So you mentioned ENR is part of your future as well, hopefully, yes. I kind of hope, I hope that I get to stay active in retail in some way. I think that's been um, important. We'll see what happens, but um, yeah, uh, I, you know, uh, maybe eventually we'll, would love to like have some cabins here and um, you know I think to date like the color collector has been this kind of personal like artistic exploration and you know I make the labels and it's just this it's been this this way to kind of keep me engaged in something creative um, but I think the next stage here is kind of an exploration of place and like um, what this spot in the gorge is all about, what, uh, what it can support, and what it means to interact with a specific place and to, to kind of share um, a responsibility for health uh, of, the, of the soil and of the surrounding environment. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think it's a different type of relationship that, that I'm kind of entering into here. You mentioned earlier your initial impressions of Oregon wine, and, and so you talked about some of the changes you've seen, especially in terms of different varietals and different kind of projects. So what are the, what are the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine from your kind of introduction to it 10 years ago to now, and, and where do you see it going in the future? Yeah, I think that there's been not only kind of an acceptance, but an emphasis on new varieties and styles. Um, I think it's really wonderful that, that there's a lot of, I mean, the Pinot Noir from Oregon is very distinct. And like, uh, I love that it tastes like Oregon. And, um, but I, I, yeah, I see kind of a broadening out of what Oregon can can do and uh, what types of quality wine are are possible here. Um, I think that um, that kind of fits with with the general kind of drinking culture in which we want to try different things. We want like to try different flavors and styles and you know drinking vinegar and I don't know there's just there's a lot more like hard kombucha and there's a lot more kind of interest in, in experimenting with new uh, new things and finding things that that are enjoyable for whatever you know dinner moment or mm -hmm. food and and that's sometimes that's Pinot Noir and sometimes that is like sparkling wine in a can you know so um, I think that's all really exciting and cool and um, yeah, uh, I think also there's been a big kind of, I don't know if it's a shift. I have become more aware and in tune with people who are focused very specifically on organic farming and biodynamics and really making it a priority to um, care for the land that we're that we're working with. Mm -hmm. I think that that um, is a really positive thing and um, direction in our industry. And um, 
I think we're all kind of, you know, doing that in different ways, and I think that's really cool too. There's no like one strict standard way to approach uh, approach that, um, but sustainability I think is becoming more and more um, kind of on the top of everyone's minds moving forward, and I'm I'm really happy to see that, and I I look forward to like kind of coming along um, during during this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You brought up biodynamics. Uh, as you plant here, is that where you're thinking? Are you gonna? Is, this, is the plan for this to be biodynamic? Yeah. Um, you know, I definitely would would love to do that. And certification may not be immediately within my grasp. That um, that it's a that's a hard thing to mm -hmm. get. And I I respect that. And I think that's important. Um, but certainly, as far as kind of chemical inputs and you know I'm really looking for solutions that don't require herbicide you know I'm not going to spray herbicides and pesticides here and I did you know I last year I did the 501 I don't think I'm quite ready to I haven't quite gotten into a rhythm with this place to be able to to um, kind of uh, do every spray um, and um, but I, I'm hoping to, to, to move towards that, and I'm actively trying to move towards that. And what I can do right now um, is to limit my, um, kind of limit my inputs and keep it natural. So I'm, you know, I'm using wood chips underneath the vines to eliminate weeds. Um, I'm trying to control pests with falcon perches and, um, you know, trying to plant kind of beneficial cover crops um, and uh, kind of things like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think that, um, you know, Atavis Vineyard, which is just down the hill from me, was established dry farm. So I thought I could dry farm. That has turned out to not really be possible. But I do think that um, ultimately, you know, I'll be able to to dry farm mm -hmm. post-establishment, and um, I, I'm, I'm excited about that, mm -hmm. um, both for the, the plants and just the kind of water um, use aspect, mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. yeah. So the questions that I have for you. <laughs> well, That's a lot of questions. <laughs> You're very interesting, you keep, you keep prompting me for more questions. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Gosh, I, um, I'm, you know, I don't think so. That was, that was a lot of, uh, that was a lot of good I, You can just see the air come out you. of you there when I told you I was, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a first for you, that was awesome. Thank you so much for your time today and for hosting us here and, and showing off and showing off your space and talking about your story. Thank and, you guys uh, for coming. Absolutely. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.